And so, a vital link between Scotland and England has ended after centuries. The Union Chain Bridge has stood across the River Tweed since 1820. It's been dismantled, but not for good, simply for refurbishment. It should be back in place next year. reject a vote of no confidence in John Swinney. Scotland's local authorities agree to freeze your council tax. And we say farewell to a gentleman of Parliament. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holiday. On any fair interpretation of what the government has done, the Tories' pursuit of this motion today is now entirely baseless. With an election only weeks away, the reality, I suspect, is that they were always intent on pushing this motion to a vote, regardless of what action the government had taken. Eight weeks before Scotland goes to the polls in the most important election in the devolution years, most opposition parties have this week chosen to focus on a vote of no confidence in the Deputy First Minister. Led by the Scottish Conservatives, this motion has been trailed over the past two weeks and hailed as the action that forced John Swinney to release government papers to the Alex Salmond inquiry. It's the second time in six months the Persia North MSP has faced a vote of no confidence. Previously, it was induced by Labour over Scotland's exam results. This week, the Tories, with support from Labour and the Lib Dems, attempted to derail John Swinney. Like the previous motion in August, the Scottish Greens said they wouldn't support it. Like the previous motion, it was defeated. The Deputy First Minister saw off this week's move by 65 votes to 57. And, as before, John Swinney spoke with grace and dignity. Officer, on the occasions in which motions of confidence are debated, other ministers tend to speak on behalf of the minister in question. Today I have chosen to speak on my own behalf. The decisions that are under scrutiny in this debate are mine, and it is right that I am accountable to Parliament for them. On the 4th and the 25th of November last year, this chamber debated motions calling on the government to release its legal advice. On each of those occasions, I set out why Scottish ministers were asserting legal privilege. It is an important tenet of Scots law that protects organisations and individuals alike, allowing them the benefit of frank, confidential advice from lawyers. That is why it is a principle that has been upheld by successive Scottish and United Kingdom governments of different political parties. Ministers' view, my view, was that we could give the committee the information they needed to understand what happened in the judicial review while avoiding the precedent for future governments of waiving privilege. That is why I took the unprecedented decision to share with the committee in confidence in December, and this is where Ruth Davidson is entirely incorrect in what she said, a detailed submission that explained the content of legal advice during the judicial review. I believed then that such an approach could fulfil our obligation to Parliament and the Committee without waiving legal privilege and therefore protecting the interests of future governments. Since then, 
We have seen outlandish allegations of conspiracy and corruption being promoted by people who, frankly, should and do know better. Those tactics require a response. We concluded that the debate those tactics provoked on Parliament's ability to scrutinise the government and the accusations on which the debate was founded could impact negatively on public confidence in the Parliament, government and even our judicial institutions. I therefore decided last week that the balance of public interest had shifted and we should publish the advice from Council. That meant that the process of release moved on to its second stage, consideration by the law officers for the first time. They consented to the release. We have moved as quickly as possible through the legal checks, having regard to the statutory obligations involved before releasing these documents. Members will recognise the importance of those processes, not least to protect the identity of complainers. In releasing information, I kept in mind the committee motion explicitly sought two things, the legal advice of our external counsel and the associated minutes of meetings relating to the judicial review. The Government has now published all of the formal written advice notes received from external counsel. Indeed, we have also published emails from our senior counsel and an unredacted version of the summary shared with the committee in December. We have also published documentation that includes the legal advice of the law officers. On minutes of meetings, we simply don't have those. We have asked senior counsel whether they have a minute of these meetings. They do not. What I can say... What I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, an important point I need to put across. What I can say is that the outcomes of these discussions are reflected in the pleadings made to the court by the government, which we shared with the committee some months ago. The documents we released confirm that in September, the clear view of council was that our prospects were good. They identified risks, these opinions always do, but it was a positive assessment of our case. As time went on and problems emerged, the picture shifted and external counsel became concerned and then alarmed. But as late as a note dated the 11th of December, the Lord Advocate was clear there should be no question of conceding. And even on the 17th of December, external counsel agreed that the case remained statable. It was the note of counsel of the 19th of December that led directly to the case being conceded. None of this is hidden. In fact, let us be frank about what we have released. It paints a clear picture, warts and all. No embarrassment for the government is spared in the publication of these documents. The documents John Swinney is referring to here are available online at gov.scot. Back to the DFM in the Holyrood Chamber. Indeed, Presiding Officer, it is worth reflecting for a moment on the significance of what the government has done in this case. We have taken the extraordinary and unprecedented step of publishing formal legal advice of the kind which no previous government in Scotland has done, and we have done so in response to the requests of the committee and motions passed by Parliament. On any fair interpretation of what the government has done, the Tories' pursuit of this motion today is now entirely baseless. With an election only weeks away, the reality, I suspect, is that they were always intent on pushing this motion to a vote, regardless of what action the Government had taken. I have sought, Presiding Officer, to provide the Committee with the information it needed to do its work. Indeed, we have, we have supplied the Committee with thousands and thousands of pages of documents. I have sought to ensure 
the Government and all future Governments retained its ability to take frank, unvarnished legal advice, and I have sought to meet my obligations to Parliament. There are always clearly conflicting judgments that have to be resolved amongst those three factors. It is now for this Chamber to judge whether those actions, taken in good faith, are sufficient to command their confidence. This Government has accepted, since January 2019, that mistakes were made in the handling of these complaints. As a result, two women were badly let down. The Government must, and will, learn lessons from those mistakes. The First Minister earlier condemned the move by the Tories as naked politicking. Here's Conservative Group Leader Ruth Davidson. Presenting officer, we know we won't win today's vote of no confidence. The votes are there for the Deputy First Minister. But we believe that it is important and right to put on record that this is no way for the Scottish Government to treat this Parliament. And while Mr Swinney's outriners will, I'm sure, do a lap of honour in the press, the real losers are Scottish Government employees who have been lumbered with a protection at work policy that everybody knows is damaged goods and that staff are too afraid to use. With a bit of transparency and candour, the committee could have helped work out what went wrong and why, but John Swinney preferred to keep evidence secret at every turn. In a particularly damning note from the 17th of December, Council told the Lord Advocate they could not advise the court that the Scottish Government had discharged its duty of candour. With the way the release of legal advice has been handled, we believe that John Swinney and the Scottish Government have failed in this duty once again. Labour's Deputy Leader Jackie Bailey accuses the Government of treating the parliamentary inquiry with contempt. I want to make a comment on motions of no confidence. I regard them as serious matters, not something to be brought forward without good reason and definitely not on the basis of political opportunism. Rather, they are a mechanism to hold the government to account. It is therefore important to consider the substance of the issue before the chamber and decide on the motion on that basis. And I do so as a member of the committee. On 17th of January 2019, the First Minister said the inquiries will be able to request whatever material they want, and I undertake today that we will provide whatever material they request. My commitment is that the Government and I will fully cooperate with it. No caveats, not speaking personally, but speaking as the head of Government. There is no doubt as to the First Minister's meaning, but the Deputy First Minister appears to be wholly confused. What the committee has had is partial information, delayed information, and in some cases, no information at all. The government has treated the committee of this parliament with contempt. For the Lib Dems, Alex Cole Hamilton said he'd rather be elsewhere, but feels he has to support the motion. It gives me no pleasure whatsoever to rise to speak in favour of this motion. Um, we have better things to be doing with our time, by rights. We should be focused on other things right now. We're in the last days of a parliamentary term, after all, and in the teeth of a global pandemic. By rights, the Salmon Inquiry should have concluded months ago. With complainers allowed to forget about this sorry business, it didn't, and so they haven't. And by rights, the disclosure of all relevant material and evidence to our committee shouldn't have ever been an issue for parliamentary debate, given that the First Minister promised our inquiry ready and total access to the documents we needed. Presiding officer, it is entirely due 
to the obstruction and sleight of hand deployed by this administration that we have arrived at this point and Liberal Democrats have no confidence in this Deputy First Minister. Co-leader of the Scottish Greens, Patrick Harvey, washed his hands of the motion and called on Parliament and Committee to focus on real issues. Presiding officer, when the committee finally produces its long overdue report, I will be looking only at the issues of substance, which address the question of why complainants raising allegations of harassment were failed and how we can ensure that this never happens again. I sincerely hope that the committee chooses, even at this late stage, to focus on that. The shallow game of winning political scalps should not be anyone's priority, and the Greens will have no part in it. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. This time last year, COVID was on our horizon and hurtling our way. As we marked Mother's Day then, could we possibly fathom how much our lives would change in a matter of days? Lockdown began across the UK on the 23rd of March 2020. We were told to stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Nicola Sturgeon had an emergency television briefing for The Nation. I said a few days ago that this crisis was reminding us all of the fragility of life in the world we live in, but that it was also reminding us of what matters most, health, love and solidarity. So let's all do what we are being asked to do now, to protect our own health and that of others, and to show love and solidarity for our fellow citizens. Almost a year later in Scotland, we're facing a death toll just short of 10,000 people. No one is a number. Everyone is a person, a loved one. Today, the number of cases is falling. We're still on a form of lockdown, however, change is here. Restrictions are being eased a little this weekend and next week. The First Minister plans to lay out her route map for a further easing. Be very aware Nicola Sturgeon will still err on caution. She says we've all given up too much to rush headlong into tomorrow. Instead, we'll take small steady steps. Now, while the changes I set out today are relatively minor, they are important for our well-being and they do represent gradual, but I hope steady steps out of lockdown and back towards a life where we can all interact much more freely with our loved ones. Next week, I will set out a firmer indicative timetable for reopening the economy, including shops, hospitality, hairdressers, gyms and parts of our tourism sector. Siding officer, the ability to announce even limited changes at this stage is possible only because of the hard sacrifices that the majority of people across the country continue to make each and every single day. So let me at the outset acknowledge and be clear that I share the anger and despair that the vast majority of people, including I'm sure the majority of football fans, felt at the weekend towards crowds of supporters flagrantly breaching rules that the rest of us are following every day at great personal cost. The behaviour witnessed at the weekend was disgraceful and it was selfish. Now, it's natural that some of the anger people feel is directed towards the government and the police. I absolutely understand that. All of us must reflect on what more could have been done and what more we need to do to avoid any repeat in the future. But those at fault are those who breached the rules. 
How the police manage situations like this is, of course, an operational matter. Government cannot and should not direct policing operations. I will, though, be speaking to the Chief Constable later this afternoon to consider what further action might be necessary to avoid any repeat of the unacceptable scenes we saw at the weekend. However, no one should doubt the deeply invidious situation that behaviour like this puts the police in as they discharge their responsibility to protect public order and public safety. We'll also be having further discussions this week with the football authorities and with certain football clubs who, in my view, do need to show much more leadership on occasions like this. Now, let me be clear, in making these comments, I really don't care about the colour of the shirt. Uh, my comments on these matters are in no way partisan. I said some harsh things about Celtic's decisions at the start of this year. And as far as I'm concerned, in this case, Rangers Football Club could have done more to help avoid this situation arising at the weekend. The fact is that elite sport is being allowed to continue just now so that fans, deprived like all of us of so much else in life right now, can continue to watch and support their teams. It would be deeply unfair if a minority spoil that for the majority, and I very much hope that will not be the case. But given the fragility of the situation we face right now, we cannot simply turn a blind eye to what happened at the weekend, and we won't. So we will report back in due course and certainly ahead of the old firm match scheduled for the 21st of March on the various discussions taking place this week. Now, finally, on this subject, I understand, completely understand, why people watching what unfolded at the weekend might wonder why they are bothering doing the right thing. But the fact is, the vast majority of us are doing the right thing because we know it really matters. It matters for our own health and for the health of our loved ones. It is about saving lives and it is working. As I will set out shortly, we are firmly on the right path. So no matter how legitimately angry we feel, let's not allow the irresponsible behaviour of a minority to set us all back. Let's stick with it as we make our way slowly but surely back to normality. Let me turn then to the substance of today's statement uh, with an overview of the latest statistics and the state of the epidemic and then the detail of the initial changes that we are proposing. Uh, firstly, today's statistics, the total number of positive cases reported yesterday was 466. That is 3.3% of all tests carried out and takes the total number of cases now to 206,465. 614 people are in hospital, 40 fewer than yesterday, and 50 people are receiving intensive care, nine fewer than yesterday. However, I regret to report that in the past 24 hours, a further 19 deaths have been registered of patients who first tested positive over the previous 28 days, and the total number of deaths under this measurement is therefore now 7,441. And yet again, I want to send my deepest condolences to all those who have lost a loved one. Now, a week ago yesterday was the anniversary of the first confirmed COVID case in Scotland. This Saturday coming will be the anniversary of the first confirmed death in Scotland of someone with COVID. And then in two weeks' time, on 23rd March, we will reach the first anniversary of lockdown. The Scottish Government has been in contact with a number of organisations to discuss how we can best mark that day. And on 22nd March, I will meet representatives of UK COVID families for justice. Current plans for the 23rd of March include a national silence. 
We are also discussing how communities can be supported to develop their own commemorative activities over the coming year as part of longer-term plans for remembrance. And I will set out more detail of all of this over the next fortnight. In addition, I know Parliament will wish to consider how it marks the occasion. And all of us, I am sure, will want to remember all those who have been lost over the past year and to offer our continued thoughts, solidarity and support to the bereaved. The SNP's chief whip at Westminster has resigned over sexual harassment allegations. Patrick Grady, the MP for Glasgow North, has stepped aside while a party inquiry gets underway. Trade talks between the United Kingdom and the United States have confirmed a four-month freeze on 25% tariffs on Scottish products of cashmere and whisky. The talks continue to try to bring down the trade barriers permanently. In the Commons this week, as part of the session of Scottish Questions, the tariffs were brought up by David Mundell, Conservative, Dumfrieshire, Clydesdale and Tweeddale, and Douglas Ross, Conservative, Murray. But first to Pete Wishart, SNP, Perth and North Persia, who asked Scots Secretary Alistair Jack what role the Scottish Government would play in the continuing talks. During the CETA trade talks with the EU, Little Wallonia, as part of Belgium, managed to block that agreement until the concerns of its parliament were resolved. Meanwhile, the Canadian state legislatures were in the next room to the Canadian federal delegation during these negotiations, putting their case. Well, Scotland is the most powerful parliament in the world, as we're always told by the Secretary of State, have similar powers to this. And if not, what will be the role of the Scottish Government in these trade talks? Thank you, Mr Speaker. Well, I'd say to the Honourable Gentleman, it's a pity he couldn't bring himself to welcome the suspension of the US tariffs, in the same way the Scottish National Party have not welcomed any of our trade deals, but maybe he and his colleagues colleagues have other things on their mind at the moment. Um, I also noticed he didn't raise separation for the first time, um, for the first time in, in sort of almost two years of being at the dispatch box, all was separation. Not today. I think he's finally thrown that broken record away. We consult with the Scottish Government on these trade deals, but these trade deals are a reserve matter and they're for the whole of the United Kingdom. And as I stressed earlier in my earlier answer, they're going to be very beneficial for the Scottish agri-foods industry. Right, David Mundell. Thank you, uh, uh, Mr Speaker. And I want to congratulate my uh, right honourable friend and particularly the Secretary of State uh, for International Trade for their relentless efforts to remove the unjustified penal US uh, tariffs on whisky and cashmere, which have been so damaging to both issues. Does he agree me, with me, though, that whatever now happens in relation to the Airbus-Boeing dispute, there can be no return to arbitrary, retaliatory tariffs on unrelated industries, and the decoupling of whisky and other products from that dispute must be permanent? Thank you, Mr Speaker. I absolutely agree with my right honourable friend. The UK Government will continue to engage with the US to agree a fair settlement to the dispute and permanently remove, remove these punitive tariffs. And that will be a deal that will work for the whole of the United Kingdom. And this agreement just shows that the UK and the US are determined to work together, and I look forward to seeing us strengthen that partnership. Right. Let's go to Douglas Ross. Douglas. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Secretary of State knows how welcome this suspension of tariffs has been in Murray with the many malt whisky distilleries and, of course, Johnson's of Elgin, who produce outstanding cashmere products. Can I outline what the Scotland office and, indeed, the whole UK government will be doing to ensure this four-month suspension becomes a permanent removal of these damaging tariffs? Well, I know my honourable friend has more distilleries than any other 
Member of Parliament in his constituency, I think 47. And I also know that he's been a great champion for the industry and he's pressed very hard for the removal of this 25% tariff. Um, Look, we're very pleased to have negotiated an agreement that suspends the tariffs. Uh, We have a space now of four months to find a resolution uh, on on what has been a 16-year-long dispute. And the Secretary of State for International Trade is ready to engage with the US Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, to agree something that's fair and balanced just as soon as the Senate confirms her appointment. As we approach the election, changes coming to the daily briefings hosted by the First Minister. Nicola Sturgeon says she'll be pulling back from fronting the service during the campaign. We'll see more of the National Clinical Director, Jason Leach, and Chief Medical Officer, Gregor Smith. But the First Minister reserves the right to host the briefings when there are major statements. I am a Democrat. I understand the importance of level playing fields in elections, and I will act appropriately. So you will uh, undoubtedly not have me doing daily briefings every day the way I have been doing them previously. But if there are big decisions that we are having to make during the election period, then I have a duty to communicate to the public what they are. It's open to Parliament to say that I should do that in Parliament rather than uh, a daily briefing and, and those discussions we'll be open to. Um, and so I, I suspect uh, you, you, you will be seeing more of, uh, even more than you have been over the last year of Gregor and Jason in terms of a day-to-day uh, basis. Um, I fully understand the importance of the election and democratic process, and it is not in my interest to, in any way to be seen to be abusing at the position of First Minister, and I will not absolutely not do that, while I will try to discharge my responsibilities uh, as First Minister as, as best as I can. You know, it will not be business as normal during the election campaign, um, but we will still be in a crisis, and therefore we need to make sure that we're serving the public appropriately. You're listening to The Week in Hollywood. I'm Charles Fletcher, and coming up in the next half hour... Highlights from this week's session of questions to the First Minister. So perhaps instead of chasing phantoms, uh, the opposition should focus on what is there because it sets out very clearly the mistake the government made uh, and the lessons the government needs to learn from that and the lessons I am determined that the government will learn from that. So why did the First Minister think that she was a better lawyer than Roddy Dunlop QC and the advocate Christine O'Neill? I didn't and I absolutely, most definitely don't. This government hasn't met the 62-day cancer waiting time since 2012. That's nine years. Nicola Sturgeon has failed to meet this target for the entire time she has been First Minister. Lots of selfies, lots of taxpayers' money, but there are certainly not 2,000 new jobs. We're an activist government when it comes to trying to protect jobs and protect economic prospects, and that is what we will always be. And we say thank you and farewell to a gentleman among our MSPs. Council tax is set to be frozen across Scotland. The move comes as Finance Secretary Kate Forbes issues a series of incentives to local authorities for not raising their bills this year. The Scottish Government is offering the 32 local authorities a cash equivalent of a 3% increase in council tax. It's part of the budget package that was approved in Holyrood this week. I reiterate my appreciation of uh, the the cross-party discussions that we have had around this budget, the constructive nature of them. And this is a budget that ultimately delivers 
for the nation. It delivers uh, for the business community, it delivers for households and it delivers for our public services. It's a budget that deals with the issues of today but also sets the groundwork for recovery. It will help create and protect jobs, support a sustainable recovery and respond to the pandemic whilst delivering the certainty that businesses and people need. Time now for our weekly session of questions to the First Minister. We begin with Ruth Davidson, who repeats the issues she raised earlier. President Officer, last week we asked about legal advice in the Alex Salmond case, and the First Minister refused to answer any questions. We were told that every issue had been covered. Then, the next day, after FMQs and two days after her evidence session, John Swinney released another tranche of legal advice, even more damning than the last. So I'm going to ask the questions that the committee couldn't about the evidence that the government were so reluctant to release. This new evidence shows that the government's senior lawyer, Roddy Dunlop QC, warned the First Minister personally against, and I quote, ploughing on regardless because of a large expenses bill that would inevitably rise. So let me ask the First Minister, how much taxpayers' money did it cost from that moment on? First Minister. Uh, we set out uh, the costs of the judicial review. I don't have that breakdown uh, to hand. I can look in to see if we can provide that breakdown to Parliament. I think Ruth Davidson, in some respects, makes my point for me. Um, and let me say, uh, first of all, I, I take, whether the opposition always want to believe this or not, I take these matters extremely seriously. Uh, and I take very seriously the obligation on me and on my government to learn lessons from this. But the point I think Ruth Davidson is making for me is that she is quoting from the legal advice that has been published. We have published all of the substantive legal advice, which sets out very clearly, I can take the Parliament through exactly what we have published in response to the request for that. But we have set out the substantive legal advice, and anybody who wants to read it, I, I suspect most people watching right now probably want to hear about vaccination and COVID and when we might come out of lockdown. But anybody who wants to read the legal advice can go onto the Scottish Government website and do that. And what that legal advice sets out very clearly, what and all, it is an unvarnished account of what went wrong. Uh, are the opinions of senior counsel at different stages of the judicial review? Um, it sets out very clearly the error that was made by the Scottish Government and the way in which that error became to be fully realised and understood. It also sets out the views of the law officers, and of course in terms of the ministerial code, that's what matters to ministers, uh, well into December, that notwithstanding all of that, the government should continue to defend the case for the wider reasons that have been set out, and then later in December, the reasons why that was no longer possible. So I think the impression the, the opposition is perhaps trying to give, I think, is that what we've published is somehow a rosy picture here, and there are horrors lurking underneath that are being concealed. Anybody who reads this can see very clearly that is not the case. A serious error was made by the government in this investigation, and as the judicial review proceeded, eh, that error became very apparent, and that is why ultimately the judicial review had to be conceded. So perhaps instead of chasing phantoms, eh, the opposition should focus on what is there, because it sets out very clearly the mistake the government made eh, and the lessons the government needs to learn from that, and the lessons I am determined that the government will learn from that. Ruth Davison. Presiding officer, I asked the First Minister a very specific question, and whatever that was, it wasn't an answer. We have since learned that from the moment that Roddy Dunlop wrote that note on the 17th of December to the time when the government finally conceded, the bill exceeded £100,000, perhaps even 
200,000, but we don't know for sure because the government won't tell us their side of the bill. Now, before the First Minister's committee session, we know that Queen's Council stated, and I quote, the least worst option was to concede the case. That was on the 6th of December 2018, a month before the case was finally collapsed. What we didn't know last week, and we only found out on Friday, was that the First Minister personally disputed this advice. And we know this because Leslie Evans sent a note that said that she and the First Minister were unclear about what has changed since the last notes in the First Ministerial meeting. Again, I'll put it to her. If she had conceded then, hundreds of thousands of pounds would have been saved. So why did the First Minister think that she was a better lawyer than Roddy Dunlop QC and the advocate Christine O'Neill? First Minister. Um, I, I didn't, and I absolutely, most definitely don't. But what I do know is that it is my job as First Minister to ask questions, uh, to query things when I don't fully uh, understand what has been put before me, and to make sure I have as full as possible an understanding uh, of the decisions that lie before me. And I actually think it would be uh, more remarkable and uh, more deserving of criticism if I didn't ask questions like the, the one that uh, Ruth Davidson has just uh, suggested that I did. But she talks about uh, advice in an early part of December. Uh, one of the things that I was questioned about and uh, talked about extensively before the committee last week was uh, the summary uh, from the law officers on the 11th of December, which sets out very clearly, and people can look at this, is that the view of the law officers then uh, was that taking account of everything, uh, they believed we should continue to defend the case, that there were credible arguments, and I think that's a, a quote from the summary note on the 11th of December, across all of the points of the petition, including the appointment of the investigating officer, which was the key uh, area of uh, problem for us. And it was set out there that that was because there was a wider interest, as long as the case was statable, in getting a judicial determination on the array of challenges that had been made both to the fundamentals of the procedure and the application of the procedure. So it's not that these issues weren't properly considered, and yes, judgments were made, but everybody can see the views of councils, uh, the conclusions of law officers, uh, that ministers are duty-bound to base our judgments and decisions on, and then what happened later in December uh, that led to the decision. Uh, to concede the judicial review. And, of course, uh, we also see a note from Council, I think as late as the 17th of December, where they say they believe the case is still statable, albeit they have significant concerns about it. So, you know, these are always judgments for ministers, taking account of a range of things. There was a mistake made by the government in the application of this procedure uh, as that became fully understood during the progress of the judicial review, that is what ultimately meant we couldn't defend the judicial review. But there were wider interests that we were also right to take into account and carefully consider at every stage of the process. And the point here is that people don't have to take my word for this. Uh, they can go and look at all of the material in quite unprecedented fashion that has now been published and draw their own conclusions, as indeed can and I'm sure uh, will the committee in due course. Andrew Stevenson. Officer, at her committee appearance, the First Minister became very forgetful, and she seems determined to forget that it was her government who were the ones who failed these women so badly. According to five people now, including a QC and a civil servant, her government is responsible for leaking a complainant's name to Salmon's team, but nobody's been sacked or even reprimanded. And despite all her protests, the flawed procedure, the one that let these women down, has never been changed. The First Minister just mentioned a second ago that six months ago, another QC, Laura Dunlop, started a review of the procedure. Our clear understanding is that Ms Dunlop has reported in writing 
back to the Scottish Government on her work. So for the sake of confidence in the procedures, will the First Minister publish it now? Because, and I don't say this lightly, this week has shown again that sexual harassment complainants cannot trust the ruling party to deal with a complaint properly. First Minister. Well, firstly, can I say uh, the, the first uh, allegation that Ruth Davidson made there is, is disputed, and I disputed it at committee last week. Obviously, uh, I wasn't party to the conversation uh, that it is based on, uh, and I'm limited in what I can say because of legal reasons. But let's you know, be clear, that is disputed. In terms of the, the procedure, the first thing to say is what was uh, found to be flawed was the application of the procedure. The procedure itself may well have been found to be flawed had the judicial review proceeded, but it wasn't. Uh, but we obviously want to await uh, the, the various inquiries before reflecting on changes we need to make. I've not seen Laura Dunlop's uh, review. It will be published, and it will be published um, in early course once uh, we have uh, seen it. Um, I want everything about this to be open and transparent, because I do want to learn lessons. Ruth Davidson, uh, perhaps belatedly uh, over recent days, has started to talk about the women, and I welcome that, because that is the issue right at the heart of this. I will be haunted for probably the rest of my life about the way in which the government, through an error, an error made, I think, in good faith, but nevertheless an error that let down those women. I've apologised for that. I wasn't involved in the investigations. I wasn't aware of the error at the time. But as head of the Scottish Government, I take and I feel responsibility for that, which is why I think it is so important to cast aside the politics in this and actually focus on the substance. That's what I'm determined to do. And that includes a determination to learn any and every lesson that any one of these inquiries tells us that the Scottish Government needs to learn. For Labour, Anas Sarwar turns his focus on other health issues affected by the pandemic. A year ago this week saw the first COVID death in Scotland. Since then, over 7,000 people have tragically died. And I send my condolences to everyone who has lost a loved one. Official government statistics show that 7,000 fewer people had a confirmed cancer diagnosis in the first eight months of the pandemic. That doesn't mean cancer has gone away. Cancer remains Scotland's biggest killer. We understand why the resources of our NHS were redeployed to deal with the virus, but the knock-on impact has been huge. That is, thousands of people who have cancer don't know and so aren't receiving treatment. And we know there's a direct link between early diagnosis and survival rates. So what action will the First Minister take right now to fully restart cancer services in Scotland, begin a catch-up programme and find the missing 7,000? First Minister. Firstly, and um, I say this not, uh, please uh, take this sincerely, not as any uh, sort of jibe at Anna Sarwar, just so that we recognise the full extent of the COVID tragedy. It's actually more than 9,000 people who have died from COVID. It's more than 7,000 under the daily measurement. But the National Records of Scotland figures, of course, uh, show that that toll is even higher. Um, of course, one of the things that Anna Sarwar is right to raise, um, and perhaps we don't talk about this enough, is that there will be many people who have suffered and even died because of the the impact and the consequences of what we've had to do to deal with COVID. And that's why when we uh, come out of this and look back and reflect on all of this, the toll will be much greater than just the direct toll of the pandemic. In terms of cancer services, uh, it is really important, well, firstly, to recognise uh, that uh, the majority of cancer treatments have and will continue uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, 
some patients' treatment plans will have changed to minimise the risk that they might have been facing uh, from COVID, uh, but the majority uh, of treatments uh, have continued, and that is important. We are funding health boards uh, right now to support cancer services uh, through uh, this year uh, in order to start to remobilise uh, those services that have been impacted uh, by COVID. And I would take this opportunity, I think it's really important, uh, to say directly to anybody who has worries about symptoms or changes in their body in any way that's causing them concern to contact their local GP now. The NHS is open, it is there to help you and nobody should be sitting uh, back worrying about potential cancer symptoms when they can and should and are encouraged to come forward. I, you know, in my own family, uh, have had somebody just this week uh, in the position of uh, having to have uh, some assessment for something that was worrying them and, and thankfully been able to, to be reassured. But I know from uh, that uh, experience uh, that those cancer services are there and we must make clear to people that they should come forward if there is anything worrying them. Thank you. And Sarah? Macmillan Cancer Research themselves have said that unless Scotland's missing cancer patients are found urgently, the country is likely to face a rapid rise in people diagnosed with early, with very advanced cancers. And they've also said that progress is nowhere near fast enough for those still to be diagnosed. The truth is that there are thousands of people who don't know or don't suspect that they have cancer, who need to be diagnosed, have their treatment started, and therefore improve their chances of survival. Urgent cancer referrals have dropped by 22%. But there are also thousands more who suspect they have cancer, have made it onto a waiting list and are waiting for diagnosis. These are individuals and their families feeling the anxiety and stress of a potential cancer diagnosis piled on top of the anxiety and isolation that comes from COVID. Diagnosis is vital. Early diagnosis even more so. It's what saves lives, not just for cancer, but for other conditions too. So can the First Minister tell the Chamber how many people who have been referred for any diagnostic test, including cancer, are currently waiting more than the six-week target? Um, I don't have that figure to hand. I may have it in my briefing folder, but to make sure we get it right, I will provide that figure um, after today's uh, session of First Minister's questions. Can I say I really agree with all of this? I think the first thing to say is that uh, we should encourage people who have concerns to come forward. I think during COVID, there has been, on the part of some people, understandably, they perhaps, as many people often do, don't want to put additional pressure on the NHS when they're dealing with a crisis, or people might understandably have concerns about the COVID risk by coming forward and going to uh, their GP, for example. So people who have symptoms that worry them should come forward. Secondly, uh, the screening programmes that had to be paused uh, have restarted. I'm at the age where I've had a, a couple of uh, appointments for those screening programmes myself in the last uh, few weeks. So those programmes are restarting. That's really important to detect cancers that perhaps people don't have symptoms of. And then, yes, we have to make sure that we're getting uh, the treatment services moving uh, as quickly as uh, we want them to do. So in terms of the cancer recovery plan, for example, uh, two new early cancer diagnostic centres um, are uh, being established within existing NHS infrastructure by uh, the, the spring uh, of, of this year, a programme of uh, prehabilitation, helping patients prepare 
further treatment. There's a, a new single point of contact for cancer patients to support them through the treatment journey, a, a resource dedicated to the national oversight of clinical management guidelines. So there's a range of actions being taken to make sure that the treatment, uh, any treatment that has been delayed because of COVID restarts and that we catch up on that as quickly as possible. But let's not lose sight of the fact that many cancer treatments have and will continue uh, through the pandemic. And that's why that fundamental message that I started with is so important. Anasawa. I recognise and welcome those steps that the First Minister outlined, but there will be little comfort for the missing 7,000 when they do get their cancer diagnosis, a late cancer diagnosis that will impact directly on their survival rate. I have the answer on the diagnostic test. The answer is 44,516 people waiting more than six weeks for a diagnostic test. And our analysis shows that is more than doubled in a year. I recognise COVID has placed a huge strain on our NHS. It has put even more pressure on an already overstretched NHS workforce. But COVID didn't create this problem. It has made a bad situation worse. This government hasn't met the 62-day cancer waiting time since 2012. That's nine years. Nicola Sturgeon has failed to meet this target for the entire time she has been First Minister. Doesn't that show that we can't come through COVID and go back to the old arguments? Instead, we, in this Parliament, should focus on what unites us as a country rather than what divides us. So shouldn't the focus of this Parliament be a recovery and a catch-up plan for our NHS so that we never again, never again have to choose between treating a virus or treating cancer? First Minister. Recovery from COVID, uh, whether it's cancer services, health services more generally, or, or the country more generally, is the focus of this government and will continue to be the focus of this government, just as uh, dealing with the acute impact of COVID and steering the country through as best we can has been the focus of me and the government uh, literally uh, seven days a week. Sometimes it has felt like almost 24 hours a day for the last year, and that will be uh, the case for as long as is necessary. In terms of cancer waiting times before uh, COVID, uh, average waits uh, in terms of the time between uh, diagnosis and treatment starting uh, are very short uh, in Scotland. Uh, we have recognised for a long time uh, there is more to do to meet targets and to reduce waiting times further. COVID has undoubtedly uh, been a serious uh, difficulty because of the, the pause in many normal aspects of the NHS that it has, has necessitated. But that is why, through investment, through reforms to how uh, treatments are being delivered and through many of the actions I've set out, uh, we're now focused on getting the NHS back uh, to normal. I hope none of us ever have to face the reality uh, that we faced over the past year again. Um, and I think our NHS has uh, coped admirably with that. But the focus now is getting the NHS back to the point where it is dealing with whatever COVID still throws at us, but is recovering and uh, seeing the patients uh, who have had treatments delayed because of COVID over the past year. Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie is alarmed over promises of thousands of jobs in Le Haber that have yet to be realised. When the GFG Alliance took over the aluminium smelter and power station in Le Haber in 2016, it received a Scottish Government guarantee worth 575 million pounds. The company promised to build an aluminium wheel factory, creating 2,000 jobs and adding £1 billion to the local economy. They said the plan was oven ready. 
Five years later, there's no wheel factory. They said they'd invest in a new aluminium bottle plant. That's not happened either. With the collapse of their financial partners, Greensill, can the First Minister tell me what update she has received about the 2,000 promised jobs for Loch Aber? First Minister. The Scottish Government is in very regular uh, contact with the GFG Alliance, both at uh, Lochaber as well as uh, DL Steel Plant um, and at a, a group level overall. Uh, the original investment plan for Fort William was impacted by the sharp fall in the UK automotive output. Uh, the business has brought forward new investment plans totalling £94 million and we continue to liaise very closely with them, both about the challenges they face but also about the steps that they need to take to make sure they deliver um, on those commitments. Um, as Parliament would expect, we've taken a series of securities uh, over the assets uh, of GFG Alliance at Lochaber. Uh, that includes the smelter, the Lochaber power station uh, and land holdings, plus a, a series of other protections in support of uh, the guarantee. Uh, the last point I would make here, though, is that you know, there are serious difficulties that have been posed for uh, companies, individuals, the public sector, as we've just been reflecting on in terms of the NHS, because of, of COVID. And we need to work through those and we need to recognise and, and resolve those. But the starting point here, and this obviously predates COVID, uh, had the government not uh, worked to try to uh, facilitate GFG becoming the owners of the aluminium smelter at Loch Aber, that uh, aluminium smelter would have would have closed and we would not have been able to protect any uh, jobs there or give any uh, hope for the future. So sometimes governments have to uh, try to be creative and to work hard within all due constraints that operate on us to do our best to save jobs um, and to provide uh, positive economic outlooks for parts of the country uh, that badly need it. And that's what we tried to do uh, with the smelter, it's what we tried to do with the DL Steelworks uh, and it's what we will always try to do in these industrial situations. Billy Rennie. The First Minister went to the smelter, had a photograph taken and said it was boom time. To great fanfare, she went to Bifab, backed by millions of pounds, but that didn't work out either. Five years ago, she signed a deal with the Chinese company Sinofortone. It was worth billions of pounds, they said. They weren't billionaires. They owned a pub in Oxford. Lots of selfies, lots of taxpayers' money, but there are certainly not 2,000 new jobs. I think the public and the workers deserve an explanation. How much money has been lost to this? How can it be right that a company uses a 30-year government financial guarantee to make profits but fails to deliver the jobs that it promised? Well, you see, these are the choices governments have to me because the alternative to trying to work with companies to secure the future uh, of uh, industrial sites or, uh, or plants uh, and to secure jobs, uh, the alternative to that is just to let these places go to the wall there and then. And there, there are no jobs and there are no opportunities and there are no prospects for the future. And in many of these cases, uh, because of the action we have taken, I mean, you take DL Steelworks, for example, uh, managing to uh, protect jobs there at a time when the only alternative would have been complete and utter closure. Similarly with BIFAB. Uh, yes, BIFAB struggles and we have a long way to go, but the alternative to the work we did back then was just to let BIFAB 
there and then go to the wall. Presswick Airport is the same. The investments that we have had to make there have protected jobs. And although it remains difficult and remains challenging, the only alternative is simply to give up on these things, to give up on the jobs, to give up on the economic prospects, um, and to say there's nothing government can do. That's not the kind of passive stand-back, uh, wash-our-hands-of-problems government that this is, or that I will ever want it to be. We're an activist government when it comes to trying to protect jobs and protect economic prospects, and that is what we will always be. A new poll out for the Times suggests increasing support for the union. The YouGov outcome shows 51% for the union, with 49% preferring independence. It also suggests there's little appetite, some 36%, for IndyRef2 this year. Now, the former council leader for Perth and Kinross, Bruce Crawford, is standing down as an MSP as this session of Holyrood comes towards a close. Mr Crawford, currently the member for Stirling, was elected for the SNP to Mid-Scotland and Fife when Parliament reconvened in 1999. He served in government, notably during the years of the first SNP minority administration and later played a key role during Indiref 1. Bruce Crawford is a gentleman. He has brought clarity, kindness and vision to this chamber. Here are his closing words. Parliament. Now, some of the, my friends here at Holyrood will be aware I seriously considered standing down at the last election, and my good friend John Swinney persuaded me not to. A man we are extremely fortunate to have as our Deputy First Minister and our Education Secretary. But on reflection, uh, and despite the very challenging circumstances of the pandemic, I'm glad I made the decision to continue for a further parliamentary session. Well, these are certainly not the circumstances that any of us would have chosen for the last year at Holyrood. I'm pleased to have been able to utilise my experience as an elected representative of 33 years, firstly as a councillor and then as an MSP, to help provide assistance and support to a great many individuals, businesses and organisations in the Stirling constituency who needed my help over the last 12 months. Officer, there are so many people whom I like to say thank you to. Firstly, a huge thank you to the many wonderful constituents who I have been in contact with over the years. Thank you, too, to the amazing staff from my constituency office who have supported me marvellously for two decades. Thank you to officials and staff here at Holyrood who have always shown me the greatest of respect and provided me with the support whenever it was required. Thank you for the comradeship shown by many MSP colleagues around the Chamber. Thank you to the officials and members of the Scottish Government for their commitment and effort on behalf of the people of Scotland. In concluding, let me th- give particular thanks and mention to the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, the person who has been my personal friend for over 20 years. You know, no other First Minister in history has had to endure the pressures she has had to be subjected to while holding this office. Her leadership during the pandemic has been truly outstanding, and I want to publicly and sincerely thank her for all the sacrifices she's made on behalf of the nation. President Officer, reflecting on my time as MSP, first let me begin with that wonderful opening day of this Parliament in 1999. The reconvening of Scotland's Parliament after a period of more than 300 years is a memory I will cherish forevermore. So too I'll cherish the memory of winning the Stirling constituency and being part of the first ever SNP government. And as a result, being in a position to do my bit to ensure the minority government stayed the course 
and delivered for the people of Scotland. In an honour, it's been an honour and the privilege of my life to be a member of this Parliament and the member for Stirling constituency, as well as to serve in government and be a convener of a number of parliamentary committees, but in particular the convener of the Finance and Constitution Committee over the, this session. Presiding officer, for me, it's always been about service, improving the lot of the people of Scotland and ultimately people of this nation taking full responsibility for their own destiny. And with these comments, I'll sign off with my final contribution to debate here at Holyrood by wishing everyone all the very best. I sincerely hope all of you and your families have a safe and peaceful future as is possible. Presiding officer.